Okay. Good day, listeners. This is Michael Martins, your host at the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from cloudy and cool West Kelowna, British Columbia. Today, we continue our investigative series into alternative energy technologies, the Site C Dam, LNG exports in British Columbia, and the interrelated relationship between these controversial subjects. It is my great pleasure to introduce listeners to Dr. Owen Finn, Director of Research at the NGO My Sea to Sky. Dr. Finn holds a BSc and PhD in Physical Chemistry, an MBA in International Business, and he retired as a partner at the major accounting and consulting firm KPMG. He therefore has great command of both science and business and can be considered an authority on the subject matter at hand. The NGO My Sea to Sky was founded in 2014 to defend, protect, and restore How Sound. The organization was formed around the early stages of the environmental assessment review of the proposed wood fiber LNG project in How Sound, and the organization's aim is to inspire the community to become stewards of How Sound and make it as simple as possible for people to take action at critical moments. Today, we're going to wade into the murky waters surrounding the environmental and safety issues associated with the development of an LNG export industry in BC, amongst other topics. Owen, thank you for joining us today. Uh, first up, uh, in your bio, I see that two of your children have become fishery scientists. Uh, how did that come to be? Uh, they grew up on Boyer Island in Howe Sound, uh, which is a very lovely spot. And uh, in wandering around the shores of, of the island, which are, isn't very big, uh, they developed an interest in everything that swims or uh, otherwise hangs around the rocks on the shorelines of the island. So uh, when both of them decided to become fishery scientists, uh, I was thrilled, as I think there are uh, not, they're not enough enough scientists in the world and perhaps too many other professions. <laughs> Very well. Uh, and, and where are they where are they researching? Are they researching locally or are they abroad? Uh, they work, both of them, for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, in, uh, in very delicate jobs that involve uh, allocation of, of quotas to various elements of the fishing industry. Ah, Excellent. So, uh, Owen, can you give us uh, a brief history on your journey uh, and your involvement in the research into LNG in BC? Well, um, after a 35-year career in, in business where I spent a lot of time in corporate boardrooms and advising clients uh, about how to improve their businesses, um, I retired um, and I was hoping to improve my golf game and a few other things in my social life um, in retirement. Uh, but along came a project in House Sound uh, where the wood fiber LNG proposal uh, suggested that, that they were going to put a 2 million ton per year LNG facility at the top end of House Sound near Squamish. That got me interested in I knew obviously what LNG was, but I didn't know much about the economics or safety aspects of, of it other than it is a very flammable uh, gas in gaseous form. Um, anyhow, that got me interested in LNG and I started researching and the more I found out, the more um, disturbed I became about the government's headlong rush into the LNG business. This was in 2013, 2014, about the same time as Premier Clark uh, started uh, to predict a um, 100,000 job industry, uh, 
a um, hundred billion hit to the boost to the BC economy and um, a, a riddance of any debt uh, on uh, in the books of BC. That uh, got me interested in knowing, as I'm curious as always, uh, about how she figured that was going to happen. And and yet, while she did indicate that 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 was going to take a pretty concerted effort on the part of, of everybody in BC to make that happen. Um, I knew that it wasn't going to be that easy. Um, so uh, that went on during its EA process for two or three years. And uh, the idea that at the same time that my scientific background said we have a climate crisis and we have to do something about it, um, aided and abetted by my children who came and said, you know, um, a ruined atmosphere, dead oceans, and a mountain of debt is not the kind of legacy we'd like to inherit, thank you. So off you go, you got the time, you got the degrees, you got the credibility as an ex-partner in KPMG, um, off you go and see if you can leave us a better planet than you got from your parents. Um, I knew that was a tall order and it's gotten taller since, um, but anyhow, give it a whirl. So um, when the climate impacts of, of an LNG industry, particularly from the leaky bits of, of, of fracking wells and pipelines and, and burning gas to produce electricity came along, um, the Site C project happened about the same time, or at least the interest, renewed interest in the then Liberal BC government. Um, came about and uh, I got interested in know, well, is, is the LNG industry really going to use grid electricity to liquefy the gas? Because it takes enormous amounts of power to do it. Um, or are they just going to revert to what my experience and all my business experience said that was the cheapest possible way of doing it, which was to burn their own gas supplier, a tenth of it, to produce electricity. So I started looking into the economics of Site C and the more I learned there, the more perturbed it became because it was pretty clear to me that, that this was not going to happen without huge subsidies. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. The government decided first to, to uh, build in the dam to institute the Clean Energy Act, which says BC Hydro has to generate all ele electricity within the borderline, borders of BC. And then it started to reduce the rate at which uh, the LNG industry would be charged for uh, electricity. And then it started to exempt them from paying carbon taxes and various other things. And uh, in the end of the day, I got wrapped up in the BCUC hearings when the NDP government, John Horgan's government, came into power in, in 2017. I got wrapped up in the BC Utilities Commission um, hearings with... Uh, some other people, particularly uh, Harry Swain, who had earlier chaired a report that said maybe Site C should not happen. So uh, the interrelationship between LNG and Site C was, I think, a key part of Premier Clark's uh, thinking, which said that we could have our cake and eat it too. We could have an LNG industry, and if we used grid electricity uh, to keep the greenhouse gas emissions down, uh, we could have cleaner um, LNG as a result and 
maybe meet our climate targets too. All that since then has evaporated totally. And now we have uh, an LNG industry in BC, which not only has not materialized, but is out yet again with its digging bowl asking governments to help it be competitive in a worldwide flood situation. We have a $10.7 billion in counting um, Site C Dam, whose power is currently not needed uh, and, and uh, whose costs are way above uh, the market costs for electricity, which now is getting cheaper and cheaper with the advent of, of renewables uh, like wind and solar. So we remain where at current, we, we have a blank check for the Site C. We have not a single nickel of revenue from to show for our, an LNG industry that's been trying to surface since 2013. And um, the BC economy is struggling both with a pandemic and looking at a climate crisis, uh, which is going to severely impact lots of things, particularly our economy. Absolutely. And I think there's a, a number of very important uh, factors that you've pointed to. Uh, you know, n number one, the capital cost of Site C, which is exorbitant. Uh, and certainly, if we had looked at uh, investing a portion of that money into, the, into research uh, of renewables to develop a made in BC solution uh, for global export, that creates an industry, that creates jobs, that creates true economic opportunity. Um, you also touch base on the cost of that hydroelectric power in comparison to what the companies could generate from their own. Uh, natural gas streams, and I believe that number is around 160 watts or $160 per megawatt at Site C in, in the 50 to $60 range per megawatt for natural gas. Uh, is that is that is that my correct? Yeah, natural natural gas is is if you heat your home with natural gas, you'll know that that kilowatt for kilowatt, um, it costs about three times as much. Um, Per energy per energy unit uh, to heat your house with electricity, particularly old-fashioned baseboard heating, uh, over um, using gas. So there is a huge advantage, and that's why industry has decided, particularly LNG Canada, to use its own gas supply, about 10% of it, to generate 80% plus of the electricity will, it will need to compress and liquefy. Uh, almost 14 million tons of, of LNG every year for export. Yeah, and uh, uh, in an interview yesterday with David Hughes, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with his name, uh, mm -hmm. he stated that uh, over a 20 to 30 year horizon, time horizon, LNG will actually contribute 15% positive emissions in comparison to the coal burning uh, infrastructure, which is presently in Asia. Uh, and if we look at that over a hundred year period, it's about nine percent reduction. Uh, so obviously, our our the impotence of of doing something to alter the direction of climate change is not over a hundred year period. It's more over the next two to three decades where we need to have an effect. Uh, so the the one of the major principal benefits that is being touted through LNG, which is the uh, reduction in emissions. Uh, clearly isn't going to happen in, in a manner in which the government would like us to believe it will. No, it isn't. Uh, the, um, the myth currently is that if we send LNG to Asia, um, the 
the particulate matter and greenhouse gases emitted, if they burn that for power, uh, will be less than um, using coal, which there's a lot of coal being used for, for power generation in China at the moment, and the air in China will be cleaner. Um, the burning LNG um, will reduce the particulate matter, um, but will not reduce the greenhouse gases. And uh, the current equation uh, is that um, about for every ton of LNG we export, just burning it, the burning act uh, will create almost three tons of greenhouse gases. So the idea that we're going to rescue and make cleaner China's air by making ours a little bit dirtier, um, that's not a good equation. What comes into play, and, and I claim some expertise in this matter, is the economics of LNG. Uh, the Canadian Energy Research Institute said that, and a recent report by the, um, by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, IEFA, has basically stated that, that at prices that we could possibly profitably uh, export LNG, of about eight to ten dollars per million British thermal units. Um, there's no way that China is going to buy it at that price when there are cheaper alternatives available. So the economics of an LNG industry in BC are haywire. And uh, that said, uh, the idea that that BC, which has been trying to get away from commodity economics now for for the forty years I've lived here. Um, is going to go back into a resource-based uh, boom and bust economic cycle, um, which we had in forestry, we're looking to have in, in LNG. And that's just the wrong way to go about planning economics. Uh, there's no value add here, much like shipping raw logs, uh, exporting gas that's been cooled, super cool to, to a liquid uh, with no secondary processing, no secondary manufacturing, no value add at all. Um, and that that's our economic future is, is an economic policy so bankrupt in this day and age as to warrant uh, serious questioning of the people who thinks that's the way to make a living. But obviously oil and gas industry does, uh, but for politicians to swallow that lie uh, is, is unconscionable and I have been, and as I have several others, um, David and uh, Andrew Nikiforuk and a lot of other commentators have commented that this is not an economic policy that, that deserves uh, entrance in the 21st century. It belongs in maybe 18th century Dickensian economics, but, but that seems to be the only thing our government knows. It certainly seems that way. And, and even for the oil and gas sector, if their cost to deliver that product to an Asian terminal is 8 to $10 and the market price is 2 there is no economic opportunity. Uh, furthermore, it, it looks as well that competitors, especially pipeline uh, supply, is coming on stream at a, at a more rapid rate than what we're able to do with our, our terminals, export terminals. And so that the market demand in Asia will probably actually decline over the next uh, 10 to 15 years to a point where all of this infrastructure um, will be completely redundant uh, from our side. Yeah, <clears throat> if you're in a gas 
industry proponent and you have a large part of your balance sheet, the assets, uh, valued based upon um, its potential extract and sale to Asia, uh, you're in big trouble to avoid the the incidents of of um, assets that become redundant. Um, the uh, the consequence of which is that your share price is going to go into the toilet, and uh, all of them are trying to figure out a way in which they avoid that stranded asset metaphor and and become profitable. And the only way they can seem to do that because the demand is relatively fixed. Uh, the pricing of that demand is relatively fixed and their costs are the only thing they can work on to try and get profitability. So they keep going to government hat in hand and asking for more and more um, subsidies, uh, lower electricity prices, uh, a break on import taxes, a break on sales tax and income taxes. Um, it's unconscionable the what the both the federal and provincial governments have done to try and promote an industry from a standing start where we've never exported LNG in the past, um, and to think that we could command ten percent of the world's demand um, from a standing start um, of an industry that's dominated by the major oil and gas players, the the big oil majors, is going to let us breathe in to their marketplace, which is very competitive, and take over 10% of their business without as much as a buy your leave. Um, that was never going to happen. Uh, that's just not the way industry competition works. And for successive provincial premiers to be hosting that lie um, and entertaining it is, as I say, unconscionable. And, and just Pollyanna thinking all the way through. To, to do it in an industry that's commodity-based, boom and bust, and to revert BC's economy back to that, uh, that's, we have worked for 40 years to diversify our economy into to include tourism, uh, film, particularly high-tech, um, in a world that, that needs the brains and skills that we can command, not to be digging holes in the ground and shipping whatever comes out of it uh, off to Asia uh, for the lowest possible price we can sustain. Um, I, I just shake my head when I see people do such things. Uh, the concept of value add has been around for 40 years. Um, we just don't add any. There's no petrochemical industry in Canada. Um, it's quite, uh, I, I sh shake my head and I keep writing about this. Uh, this is not the way to go about building an economy of the future that we can hand to our children and feel proud of it. Well, unfortunately, uh, gentlemen like yourself uh, aren't in the political sphere uh, speaking intelligent truths. Uh, rather, we have a bunch of um, uh, buffoons who are in power seeking to maintain power. And I was actually somewhat optimistic with the NDP Green coalition that came in that we would see uh, Site C and LNG struck down, which was somewhat of their, certainly on the Green side, was uh, part of their electoral platform. And the moment they're getting the, the fat checks for being in political office, all of that changed. Uh, and certainly with Site C, you know, the, the billion dollar plus price tag to shut it down, I don't think that that's 
reasonable. I think that was a, a grand over overestimation. Uh, you know that uh, the disturbed land doesn't need much treatment to get back to a natural state. I mean that wasn't uh, uh, eight thousand years ago that that was a barren wasteland uh, post glaciation, and it's recovered to the point it is now. Um, so there's definitely a lack of leadership, and I agree wholeheartedly that uh, if if BC and Canada is going to uh, avoid becoming a third world country uh, with a dramatic loss in standard of living, that we need to get away from uh, this extraction-based economy, get into value add. And you know, uh, my original career was in the forest industry, and you know, seeing at the time, you know, this is 20 years ago. Uh, Ikea furniture was from Swedish wood, which has a, you know, an eighth of the land mass of British Columbia, yet they have a worldwide export business with, with furniture that you know, obviously is of low quality, but they'd still established that secondary and tertiary processing to increase the value of the wood coming out of their ground. And you know, today, the situation's far worse uh, than when I left the, the forest industry. Uh, for example, in the Queen Charlotte's now, the uh, native-run forestry operations are loading second-growth spruce into containers uh, and exporting them to China for you know nominal value. And the, the and the real disappointing thing is that we're seeing areas which shouldn't be logged, particularly close to some of these um, fantastic streams, um, logged to within the absolute the minimum uh, allowable borders according to the the Forest Act. Um, and this, this wood simply is, is pulp wood. It doesn't have any value. The rings are very wide. It can't be manufactured into anything. And so um, we're, we're robbing our future potential for a small gain today, which I think is also uh, applicable uh, to this export LNG market where the first years or first five to 10 years of this extraction will be focused on the lowest hanging fruit and most easily extractable um, petrochemicals which for Canada and British Columbians in 20, 30, 40 years, we're still gonna require that energy to power our homes. And now we're gonna be paying far higher prices as the extraction of that more difficult to obtain material uh, is all we have left. I agree. The um, Australian experience we, sh we should watch. Uh, when they started uh, with, to try and become the leading LNG exporter in the world um, several years ago. Um, they thought they had an abundance of, of methane, cold bed methane. And um, they built several LNG plants and started shipping LNG off to Asia. Uh, what happened there, of course, was that the price to the locals of the, the remaining gas tripled because uh, it um, used up all the supply and they commanded the industry commanded all the supply and it turned out locals in Australia wound up paying far more for their gas than their Asian customers were paying for LNG and that the current debate in Australia as to whether they shouldn't be in Victoria and New South Wales um, be establishing import LNG import plants uh, so the idiocy of that were uh, boats are leaving uh, Gladstone Harbour um, for, bound for Asia with, loaded with LNG and uh, LNG boats uh, are arriving, would be arriving at LNG import plants in Australia to compensate uh, as clearly some of the more idiotic uh, government inventions you can think of.
Um, back to uh, the change of government between the Clark and Horgan governments, I was in the legislature on the day uh, that the bill giving large subsidies to Petronas's Northwest LNG was debated. And I watched the opposition, then opposition NDP, um, one after the other get up and abrade the Clark government for the generosity in, they were showing towards Petronas, um, who was proposing to build the plant, and the callousness with which they treated the Lashkalam's um, ownership title to particularly Lilo Island. So, and to turn around and, and watch the current cabinet of an NDP government uh, hand out even richer um, subsidies, $67 billion of them, uh, to LNG Canada, um, headed by Shell, uh, Petronas, PetroChina, and Kogas, um, is just incredible to watch that about face. Uh, where um, after election, years, as soon as the checks started arriving from wealthy donors, um, the government's tone changed and now they've become the leading proponents of an LNG industry that, as I said, has yet to produce a dime for the, for the public sub, uh, and, and will definitely, if the IEFA and other reports to be believed, will never produce a dime of pub money for the public purse to pay nurses and teachers. Um, that's just quite amazing. And, um, those of us who, who went to, sites, to the Site C hearings by BC Utilities Commission wound up um, watching the executives of BC Hydro um, defend their abysmal uh, predictions of what was going to happen to the electricity market. But, but the whole hearing went and watching the BC Hydro executives um, propound their story. Um, was a lesson in, in um, if all you have is a hammer, everything, of course, looks like a nail. And BC Hydro uh, always thinks, uh, as do politicians, uh, that, that large dam projects are the stuff of, of manly engineers. And, and uh, BC politicians think that cutting a ribbon on a new dam uh, far outweighs the idea of, of hosting uh, a ribbon cutting ceremony at a bunch of solar panels. Um, there's just no glory in that. And of such idiocy is our public policy made. Uh, BC stands to, to lose, lose uh, on this LNG business. We will, we will make a joke of clean BC if it isn't already one. Um, and, uh, we will not benefit the public purse uh, by handing out all these subsidies and building an 11 and counting billion dollar dam to power the, this, this, this lose money losing industry. Um, and the public in B BC are being hoodwinked into uh, believing this fairy tale as uh, much as the public was convinced in the 2013 election that the the thing blazoned on the side of Christy Clark's uh, campaign bus was a debt-free BC. Um, right now, we have a public utility, BC Hydro, sinking in 25 billion and counting of, of debt. Um, 
it doesn't make a profit except by doing some kinds of accounting tricks that no other industry in the world has ever heard of. And its debt to equity ratio is sinking to around 4.5 to one, meaning that for every dollar it actually owns in assets, it owes 4.5 dollars, $4.50 in liabilities. Uh, if you or I ran that, a kind of debt to equity ratio, your bank manager would be calling around to possess your house, your car, and everything else you own, maybe the shirt on your back. But, and, and BC Hydro is only being saved from insolvency at the moment by the government's moving, as it did last spring, almost a billion dollars of uh, debt on BC Hydro's books onto the books of the province and uh, giving. BC Hydro, the financial credibility to be able to borrow the money to pay for Site C, which will, according to my estimate, uh, never produce a dime for uh, the public purse and will continually be a, a sore spot on um, BC Hydro's books. Uh, I reckon that that per, kil per megawatt hour, uh, they're going to, to run somewhere, I think you mentioned, uh, $160 a megawatt hour, I, my figure comes out to north of 120. That at a time when at the Mid-Columbian Trading Hub for Electricity in the Northwest um, of the US, um, power can be gotten for $17 a megawatt hour, or what in our normal household terms, 1.7 cents per kilowatt hour. You and I are charged by BC Hydro between 11 and, and 13 cents per kilowatt hour. And here they have the capability, were it not for the Clean Energy Act that, that Christy Clark passed in order to facilitate Site C, oh, BC Hydro could acquire power for 1.7 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, we're being robbed and the public will wake up to this, uh, hopefully sometime before the upcoming election. Uh, which we're not sure of the date, but it's supposed to take place by October of next year. And I'm hoping that this and other commentaries by people in the know uh, will add to the public discourse that needs to take place before we elect a government to do the same kind of rubbish that they're doing now. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. There's two issues that I want to touch on. One, I think fundamentally, BC Hydro, it's not BC Electric, it's BC Hydro. And that's a specific reference to their inability to consider energy sources from anything that doesn't fall over a dam. Uh, so I think there's a fundamental problem there. And with that debt structure in place, perhaps the best thing that could happen is that company uh, it becomes bankrupt and the assets are privatized and, and um, brought into control uh, in, in a better fashion. And the other one that I'd like to touch on are the royalty uh, agreements that are in place for these LNG plants, even if there was an opportunity at market prices to earn an income, the the revenue or sorry the royalty structures really result in in no uh, appreciative uh, revenues for the province or for the taxpayer. Yeah, the royalties um, have gotten um, down and down have gone down and down and down since 2012 or so, where we're producing twice as much gas. Uh, as out of holes in the ground in Northeast BC, uh, as we did then, and getting a fraction of the royalties for the twice as much gas. Um, I calculated at one stage that the royalties that we were getting from gas 
um, were less than the city of Vancouver collects in parking um, each year for the last three years. And that's a stunning um, revelation when you start calculating it. It's, it's over um, $60 million a year that the city of Vancouver levies its inhabitants for parking fees and fines. And uh, when you net out some of the subsidies um, from the revenues that the BC government collects, uh, you're left with less than that. Um, and and there is a huge question as to whether the industry will ever uh, generate a profit. And even if it did, the kinds of companies um, that are in the business, um, you look at um, the Pacific Oil and Gas, which is the owner of the wood fiber plant, uh, which has structured its ownership of that uh, to allow easy offshoring of any profits that accrue uh, to the operation. Um, the local operation will basically cover its costs and not yield any tax. Whereas the Singapore-owned company or Singapore dom domicile company that will actually own the gas and sell it as LNG, uh, will benefit from the tax treaties that exist uh, between Singapore and BC uh, and Canada rather and uh, and not pay any tax locally so um, that and the, in the LNG Canada consortium or Shell, Cogas, Petronas all dab hands at structuring companies to minimize um, they would call it being tax efficient um, some of us have less fanciful names for it, um, and uh, and th they know how to do that. The chances that that BC is going to get rich out of this is close to zero, and the the offshoring of of any profits that would pertain to this venture uh, is going to kill any prospects of the government uh, reaping a bounty from it and paying our teachers and nurses. It's just not going to happen. And uh, I can say that from long experience and watching carefully on what's happening on the international tax front where successive governments have balked at doing anything about reining this practice in. So I mean, really we have a, a, a runaway issue here, which is tantamount to theft of VC's resources for really no net benefit to the residents of VC or Canada. Yeah, if, if, you know, in the fullness of time, we fail to come up with a, a, an alternative energy source to heat our homes, cook our food, um, power our industry, um, then what we've got left is what's under the ground uh, in our oil and gas resources um, and, and our hydro. And, uh, and if we fail, then what's left uh, is we are busily digging up and the best formations of and uh, shipping out to power Asia. We live in a cold country. We have a limited supply of fossil fuel gas. Do the math. And um, to rob our, our succeeding generations of, of that safety valve that if all else fails, uh, we will stay warm and, and, and not hungry um, through utilizing what resources we have. Uh, that's just a proposition which is a lose-lose situation for, for this and future generations, and we should not be doing it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah the, Canada's resources for Canadians first. I mean, something along those lines of uh, this, this is an energy security policy uh, in, and as well as an environmental uh, security policy. Yeah, that's what the oil and gas people don't tell you is that, yes, if, if and they have made no great shakes progress in inventing alternate energy technologies, uh, they spend their money digging up more holes in the ground and digging out oil and gas. And the, uh, if we fail, uh, we are going to be look even sillier than we do now. And, uh, and that, that we sustain this rip it and ship it practice um, um, subjected our children to a boom and bust cycle of economy where they have gig jobs in a gig economy uh, for as long as the good times last. Um, and if you want a picture of what that looks like, look no, no farther than the borders of Alberta and BC, where uh, Alberta is unlike Norway, which had the good sense to put away its, its profits from oil and gas in a heritage fund that now tops a trillion dollars. And look at Alberta, which is struggling um, to um, maintain any balance in its heritage fund that Peter Lougheed set up. And it's a, a disgrace to, to, to his memory, uh, which, which where he knew what was coming at him, um, but successive premiers of Alberta have given the show away such that it is basically a corporate kleptocracy in in uh, Alberta from the oil and gas industry. And uh, you know, BC looks to be headed that way if it doesn't pick up its socks. Yeah, that's a good, a good point that you raised with uh, Norway. And I know that uh, their royalty rates are significantly higher, uh, some of the highest in the world, uh, yet they have uh, partnerships with uh, all the major oil companies that are still able to pull profits out of those formations. And, and of course, as you say, Norway has been, Norway and the Norwegian people have been the ultimate benefactors of that arrangement. Yeah, the, the, the silly thing is, is these are the same oil and gas companies we deal with. And, and there was a, a story about a finance minister in the, in the Norwegian government and when they were negotiating the, the royalty rates for uh, these oil and gas industries, um, they had, um, they still have a, a publicly owned uh, oil and gas company called Statoil. And that's always the, the back pocket arrangement that, that if the oil and gas companies don't like the latest uh, royalties that the government wants to extract from them, uh, Statoil will, thank you very much, uh, pick up that license and go and, uh, and for the public benefit. So these same oil and gas companies, um, are paying up to 60% of the market value at the wellhead um, for each barrel of oil that's extracted and, um, from Norwegian wells. And uh, they come over here and, and we give them the privilege of not at the wellhead royalty calculations, but on the net profit calculations. And um, having reasonable familiarity with accounting, you can get any number you want. Uh, <laughs> through creative accounting you can get that uh, to zero if you, if you work hard enough right oh well the the archetype of a creative accounting of course is none other than bc hydro which has somehow configured um liabilities to be assets and and assets to be on the public dime so yeah and 
one, one thing that I did want to cover is um, the environmental assessment process uh, or the, the lack thereof or the, or the broken system which we seem to be working with. Um, how do we restore uh, oversight and, and an actual thorough environmental assessment of, of uh, these projects that are under federal jurisdiction? Um, how do we go about doing that? How, do we, how can we make a change? Well, one change I would make immediately is to remove the unique uh, capability BC and Alberta and uh, Canada have got going, which is if BC requests a substituted environmental assessment, it means the feds back off and BC does its own environmental assessment. And given the track history of, of the bureaucrats in both the Oil and Gas Commission and the Environmental Assessment Office, um, who have approved pretty well anything that moved um, uh, on the theory that, oh, we can always put in um, conditions to mitigate the damage. Um, so they start off with, with the presumption and a client relationship where the, the proponent is paying the environmental assessment office for its time to investigate itself. And then the proponent hires professionals, biologists, uh, um, sometimes referred to as biostitutes, um, to produce reports that say no significant damage to one thing or another. And they have very creative ways of deciding what significant damage is and isn't. Um, then, so BC is alone, the single province who's got the ability to do this, to ask Ottawa to back off. And yet, thank you very much, they'll do their own environmental assessment, which they have done and have approved every single uh, LNG facility that has gotten its, its EA process um, to, to the, uh, the environmental assessment. So we, restoring public confidence in that is going to take a big act. And Minister Heyman uh, amended the BC environmental assessment um, process uh, to try and restore some public confidence. I would confidently say it has not done that and it has proceeded on its merry way to do about the same thing as it did before um, and has not removed uh, the whole reliance of uh, what's called professional reliance uh, of pay professionals paid for by the proponent um, to to say um, okay that there's no significant damage hither thither or yon in this proposal um, you know, the orcas are not at risk, uh, the riverine uh, salmon um, proclivity of the Fraser River is not at risk, uh, the inhabitants are not at risk from LNG ships um, um, pulling a Beirut Act um, in the middle of, the, of a busy channel. Um, uh, aided and abetted by carefully placed donations um, to political parties uh, when push came to shove, uh, in the case of wood fiber uh, and Fortis, who were conspiring to do this wood fiber plant in House Sound, and the totals for each of them during the course of their environmental assessment amounted to over $300,000 each. And, and ceased immediately, they got their approval for doing the project. The coincidence of that timing um, is an absolute uh, um, proof that that there is political influence, there is 
uh, interference in the environmental assessment process, and it's not as it claims to be for the benefit of the BC citizens. We're being hoodwinked into uh, ignoring these kind of transgressions and into believing that that there's going to be a big payday somehow, somehow, um, somewhere um, by producing by allowing these things. Uh, much the same happened in the logging industry, in the fishing industry, which is largely controlled by one individual. Um, uh, the quotas have all been bought up. Um, um, we have monopoly power uh, being being abused, and uh, we're calling it a democratic process. Um, we have to have a serious think about the rebalancing of public good and corporate power. Um, and until we do that, we're going to see a repeat um, and repeat, rinse and repeat uh, for these environmentally destructive projects such as LNG. Absolutely. So in your opinion, then, the environmental assessment process as it stands is not making its decisions based on science facts or real evidence uh, which would serve the public. Rather, the proponents are gliding the assessment process through uh, through their in political influence. Um, yes, um, that's putting it as bluntly as I can. Yeah. Um, I agree with that characterization. We have not improved it at all. We have um, we have a very biased government whose official policy is to promote an LNG industry um, is to uh, promote the building of Site C Dam um, as a part of our electricity supply. Um, and then we have civil servants who take note of this political suasion and uh, act accordingly and hand out environmental assessment certificates uh, to players that, that, that have no business case and uh, and skirt regulations and, and and keep going the the environmental assessment process is broken has been broken for many years and, and the attempts at fixing it have utterly failed um one might add and and propose uh, deliberately yeah uh and, and is it true that the national energy board excludes potential climate change effects from its declared declared scope yes yeah yeah uh it doesn't exist um sometimes i blame economists um for declaring that that uh, environment is an externality um you have to wonder about about economists being called scientists when there's two great theorems in, in economics uh, that are questionable. One is that the environment is an externality in economic calculations. Uh, no matter how many civilizations we've seen come and go, um, Easter Island, uh, the Mayans, uh, etc., um, the economists fail to recognize that, that the environment is the basis of economics. The second one, of course, is the perfect market hypothesis, which uh, one wag put it that an economist is somebody who could pass a $5 bill lying on the street uh, on the basis that, that if it was really there, somebody would have already picked it up. Um, that's the perfect market hypothesis, which is that everybody knows everything and the market is perfect, works perfectly. Um, and yeah, there are some better economists um, coming out and with more modern 
economic theories about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And uh, uh, the, hopefully they will get to being in a position where government listens to them rather than civil servants who are, are looking at government policy and saying, well, there's nothing much we can do here except approve something and then add three or four conditions saying, we'll mitigate this damage and that damage and the other damage. And we'll, but we'll rely on the company to report how it's doing. Um, so enforcement isn't there in any of the conditions that people add, as we found out in many cases. Um, the federal government isn't blameless in this thing. It, it, you know, particularly for the LNG industry, Canada doesn't have an LNG export plant um, at all. It has one on the East Coast, it has one import plant and uh, has been operating for minimally for several years. But we don't have any regulations um, of equivalent status uh, to say our, even our US compatriots. Um, for example, uh, in the US, you are dissuaded from putting in LNG facilities within three and a half kilometers of any significant human populations. We have no such regulation in Canada. And we have currently Fortis uh, BC, a, a regulated utility, planning to put a five million ton per annum LNG plant at the south end of the Fraser River, close to the, the Massey Tunnel. Um, where LNG ships loaded with 65,000 tons of, of flammable and explosive LNG are going to have to pass by high-rise towers in Richmond um, in a crowded waterway populated by freighters, tugs, and seaplanes, um, and on the approach to strip to Vancouver Airport. Um, U.S. regulations, and the U.S. is by no means the leader in this field of regulating LNG facilities, um, they would never allow something like that. Um, not after what happened to them in 9-11 and, and subsequently when they realized that LNG plants were major targets um, for terrorists, um, they were very careful about never allowing uh, LNG plants to be built within three and a half kilometers of a populated area. Here we are in Canada, Galing, 20 miles north of, of the U.S. border, uh, proposing to put an LNG plant right there. And, and let's just explore that uh, facet a little bit more. I mean, what what are the potential impacts if, if there is an explosion? I mean, what sort of uh, blast radius would we be uh, looking at with something like that? Happening? Uh, that's three and a half kilometers. Three and a half kilometers. And, uh, we don't have to look farther than Beirut and other places to know that that regulations unless strictly enforced can get you in big big trouble and yeah. in beirut as you know that uh, storing um thousands of tons of of uh, ammonium nitrate um, in a warehouse which caught fire uh, is not a good thing to do and no. uh, regulations apparently prohibited and but the harbor masters and port authorities there didn't do anything about it here we have, we don't have a, a significant plant there in, in Tilbury Island, the Fortis one, um, but planning to put 5 million ton a year LNG plant um, on an island at the south end of, of the Fraser River um, in the middle of a, opposite a jet fuel facility on the opposite bank in a zone that's marked as the highest liquefaction, and I mean no pun, 
um, area in the province in the event of a big seismic event. Um, give your head a shake. This is not something that, that should be doing. And, and the upshot of it is, Fortis BC is a regulated utility whose rates are set by, uh, allowed by the BC Utilities Commission. And Fortis is planning to apply um, to the BC Utilities Commission for the public through its rates to pay for this facility, even though it's for export, not at all for the population of BC. Um, and it's, it's possible that the government will um, as they did with the wood fiber pipeline, uh, grant um, Fortis uh, a, an exemption from what's known as the Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity, um, which recognizes that, that Fortis is guaranteed about an 8% rate of return on its capital investments. So given that this would be several billion dollars in capital, um, being guaranteed a rate of eight and a half percent return uh, means that they don't have to be that concerned with actually making any money out of it um, as long as they can get their investment of capital recognized they can take it to the bank now if you and i walk into a bank and ask for an eight and a half percent return on money so we slap down on the, the wicket um, uh, I'd be over there as much as you would in a short order, uh, given that rates for currently for 10-year bonds uh, from AAA rate investments are less than 1%. Anyhow, um, we have very strange economics happening in uh, oil and gas industry. We have, we have a Trans Mountain pipeline that's money losing, except for more accounting tricks uh, being done undervaluing the the four and a half billion dollars that we paid to, um, for the thing, um, which if real accounting were in place, would be shown to be losing money um, now and, and no prospect of ever recovering that. Um, I'm not very happy with what I see. I hope other people realize that, that we are being sold a, a pig in a poke and um, this is not going to continue flooding um, 150 kilometers of very good fertile land in the Peace Valley to generate power we do not need at prices that are outrageous um, is just uh, as silly an economic prospect as I can imagine. And uh, the likes of Ken Boone, the farmer there in the Peace Valley Association, um, have loudly and long um, persuaded proclaimed that this is idiocy. Um, I, I agree totally with them. When you can generate with battery backup, uh, solar and wind power for a fraction of cost of what it's going to cost to BC Hydro to, to generate site C power, um, we have a government who has lost it economically. Yeah. And on that point again, I mean, I'll reiterate the fact that that investment which you know really first of all has a finite lifespan has no economic potential and and with the given impetus to develop renewables i mean there should be that would should have been where the direction was i mean a half a half a billion or a billion dollars into research and development would have created a whole new industry a whole new uh, approach to energy production 
would have spared all the issues going on in the piece and, and delivered a product uh, to British Columbia and Canada that could be exported globally. Yeah, and you're right about BC Hydro. Why isn't BC Hydro called BC Energy? Or we have a, a company called BC Solar or BC Wind or BC Renewables um, uh, who are equally favored by the government and to go and do what they do, which is a lot less environmentally destructive than, than what BC Hydro is doing. Um, I recall being at a board meeting with BC Hydro and somebody rushed in and told it, whispered to the chairman that we were in serious trouble. We're in serious trouble. And the chairman just looked at him and said, what can be the trouble? Has it stopped raining? And uh, uh, that's a true story. And uh, that's how BC Hydro thinks. And they have worked at putting regulations in to prevent people generating more power than they need individually. What's going to happen to power is pretty well every expert has said is it's going to be local and dis local distribution of, of uh, renewable power is going to be the thing. Uh, people in the computer industry will remember the days when we had mainframes and dumb terminals, uh, where the mainframe was it. And then along came the internet and multiple um, servers uh, connected by multiple redundant um, electronic communications networks. And suddenly we are, as you and I are today, um, with laptops sharing computing resource uh, across the globe. And that's what's going to happen to the energy industry very quickly. The idea that large dams are going to be our sole source of energy uh, uh, and those will exist a thousand kilometers away from where the power is needed, principally in the lower mainland, uh, that that's a scenario that's going to exist 50 years from now is dreaming something that just is not going to happen. Um, People have said that Site C will be the last dam constructed. Uh, at the current rate of progress, it um, it may never be constructed because um, everybody who warned BC Hydro that building a dam on what is ultimately what, on shale, which is ultimately compacted mud, uh, is not the place to put um, a huge reservoir of water. Hold back a huge reservoir of water with an earth earthen dam on those kind of reported last week by Site C on the right bank of the uh, piece uh, are really serious. And we have yet to understand what that means in terms of time and money. Um, but the Site C, the uh, priced um, producer of power we didn't need um, is now becoming uh, much like its compatriots at the Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland and the Kias Dam in Manitoba, uh, they are white elephants of the worst ilk. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting point that you bring up in terms of the, the, the safety and the, the, the potential to even perhaps not complete that project because of the lack of bedrock and the lack of uh, ability to, to anchor that structure into something substantial. Um, and, and Ken has definitely stated his fears of, um, especially now with are changing uh, weather patterns and the snowfall accumulations and, and the delivery of that. Uh, in my understanding, the construction has been delayed this season because of high water flows and uh, the, the dam, um, the Williston Lake Dam, <clears throat> they've had to spill water to reduce the, the reservoir's level, which of course is now preventing them to get to work on Site C. 
And uh, should that occur in future time when the dam is built and that Site C dam isn't able to withstand uh, you know, that saturation or there's some, some element within the underlying structure that we're not uh, privy to at the moment, <clears throat> you know, that, uh, that could, could liquefy and that if that dam bursts, I mean, that's a, a, a major catastrophic event for the downstream population. It is. Uh, the Site C dam is unlike its compa two compatriots upstream, um, Site A and Site B. Um, the, uh, is built on shale uh, rather than on uh, bedrock and shale formations, which we're fracking for the gas um, up there are, um, are just loose. Um, the locals, uh, the First Nations, um, call them the walking hills. Um, because they, they fall down regularly and they move. Um, uh, this is not the place to build a major hydroelectric dam. And uh, BC Hydro has known this for years. Um, when I first arrived in BC in the uh, early 80s, I remember going to a Canadian club lunch and the then president, CEO of, of Hydro speaking at the lunch. And he said, announced that, that unless uh, BC built, um, I think it was three nuclear power dams, Hat Creek, which was a coal-fired proposal, and Site C. We'd be eating our lunch. We'd be eating sushi in the dark. And uh, since that time, there hasn't been a single major dam or, or hydroelectric generating capability built in BC. And last I looked, the lights are still on. And uh, that was 1980. So BC's hydro's forecasting and its inclusion of economic effects like um, elasticity as prices have gone up um, is just abysmal. And, and they repeated that throughout the whole Site C hearings. Uh, and they threw in the factor of, of LNG uh, plant consumption. And as it turns out, LNG Canada is going to forsake grid power and use uh, locally generated gas generated power for over 80% of its electrical needs. And the, the prospects that the other three facilities, Kitimat LNG at Bish Cove, um, has already announced that they will try to use grid power for all of its production, as have um, Fortis BC at the Tilbury facility and wood fiber. But those, the prospects for those three are, are dim to say the least. Um, so it turns out that, that LNG and Site C really have nothing to do with one another, which is an ultimate um, bad joke. Uh, since I think in Christy Clark's imagination, um, the Site C was, was going to be necessary in order to power these things. Well, it looks good if you're uh, doing some nap, napkin math uh, at a, having a coffee meeting, and then that seems to be the sort of level of uh, analysis that has been performed from the governmental level on this uh, on these projects. I was shocked when I went to my first um, open house as part of an EA process, and uh, I asked the people to what extent uh, the economics and economic viability came into environmental assessments, and they looked at me like I was from Mars. Um, they said, no, 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 we don't, that's the company's business, not ours. I said, well, when you're talking about government subsidies for these things, uh, surely you take into account whether they're ever going to repay any investment of the public purse. And no was the answer. 
Um, that again uh, is part of the answer in south of the border where as recently as last year, FERC, the equivalent of the Environmental Assessment Agency in the US, uh, turned down the Jordan Cove LNG facility because it had no customers and it had um, very iffy economics. Um, in Canada, we've never asked economic questions of, of things, but um, I, I did recently uh, inquire of the BC government, I did several FOIs, uh, to try and find out why LNG Canada's uh, calculation of, of a return to the public purse of over $22 billion, where that number came from. And what I got back was several hundred pages of absolutely redacted, uh, there's nothing showing except white space, redacted uh, results and a thank you note for inquiring and here's your result. Um, um, the, for a government elected on the promise of transparent government and elected on promises to look very closely at fossil fuel subsidies and fossil fuel proposals. I find that quite shocking. Well, it's the same with the federal government and their uh, promise to be more transparent. I mean, I think this administration is uh, as, as bad or worse as the last one that uh, passed through the office there. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to argue that, um, certainly. Um, that's my experience. Yeah. Uh, they promised transparency, but have not delivered. Uh, we are in the dark right now as to what the problem really is with uh, the right bank of Site C and what the money and time uh, necessary to fix it is going to be. And we're even in the dark as to whether, given all that, the Site C is still viable. I did a read. Um, quick calculation of the um, of how far could you get along to building site C and spending money on it uh, and it's still being a good idea uh, to abandon it mm. and I think the original number I came up with was somewhere close to six billion dollars of what was then a nine billion dollar dam. Um, I still think that the um, sunk cost um, requirement as everybody knows, and I went to MBA school, um, some cost is you are to ignore in any calculations of, of where we go from here. And even if the number, that number is now up around 5 billion, um, as to what's been spent already, uh, walking away from site C, which is uneconomic to begin with, is still a viable consideration. And uh, unless they can fix that problem, geologic problem, which I doubt, um, that's what we're looking at is a huge embarrassment um, and uh, for both this government and the previous one which claimed to get it past the point of no return. Uh, I claimed that that Site C was always past the point of no return um, and that there was no return to the public purse uh, pursuing this. Yeah and that certainly affords an opportunity for a uh, political party or politician to step forward with some meaningful transparency and, and really analyze the situation for what it is and, and campaign on a, an exit from this, um, you know, with, with egg on your face for having spent the money that they've spent. But at some point, as you say, those sunk costs need to be abandoned before additional costs are, are uh, added to that, which, you know, have, has no economic potential. Uh, and also now, as we're seeing with this bedrock and uh, stability issue, may have a massive safety issue um, looming for the years to come. 
Yeah, um, making power for $120 a megawatt hour and selling it to an LNG industry for 60. Um, as every kid who runs a lemonade stand knows, is not the way, the most compelling business case you've ever heard of. So uh, that's what we're looking at with Site C. Uh, and especially when south of the border, they can buy power for $17 per megawatt hour. Um, it, it looks to be attractive to do that. And that was what Bill 17 um, was all about, was enabling BC Hydro again to buy electricity and um, from the southern US, uh, from California, where there's lots of solar and wind power, um, that much cheaper than BC Hydro can generate it. But we have a publicly owned utility that uh, is near and dear to lots of people's hearts, including mine. And uh, but it's it's off on the wrong track being a hydro producer and uh, uh, producing a commodity that, that has to be heavily subsidized by the public taxpayer in addition to the rates we're paying for for power yes um, and making the same mistake to others the muskrat and kiosk made of assuming that that, that oh if we have a surplus we can always sell it for a profit down south um we can't yeah. So the environmental assessment process doesn't take into the uh, account the economics of the project. Uh, mm -hmm. I understand that they also don't look at the cumulative effects or the temporal effects of any one project uh, or the additive temporal effects of multiple projects in the same region or, or ecosystem. Correct. They do not. No cumulative effects are done. And there are very poor baselines to know, well, what was the situation before any of these started? If you look back in the, uh, particularly to native uh, understanding of what, say, the fishery was like in House Sound before pulp and paper and copper mines and chemical plants arrived, um, that memory is still fresh. Um, everybody, myself included, who, who came to BC, remember sun derbies in, in House Sound, where there were fishing derbies, and, and I was once concerned that that the salmon might actually jump in the boat rather than me having to catch them. Right now, there is no sun derby. There is no salmon uh, stock. Um, the collapse up at Big Bar has basically killed off a great deal of the uh, Fraser salmon anyway. Um, and we have, we have um, climate change moving salmon populations further and further north into cooler waters. Uh, we're in big environmental trouble, and we have successive provincial and federal governments who have refused to recognize that and take action accordingly. And instead, they pay lip service to jokes like Clean BC and uh, the federal um, carbon tax as being the panaceas for getting us out of our troubles. It will not. <clears throat> and responsible parents everywhere should know that and, uh, and pick their politicians accordingly. So what's what's the uh, the pathway forward then in terms of these uh, environmental assessment uh, processes? In your opinion, what do we need to do, or what should the new process look like? Oh, there's lots of changes to make to the process. Um, first of all, I think we have to kill um, the 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 uh, allowance that BC has to have a provincial only. Um, assessment. The, the, 
these issues, particularly the greenhouse gas emissions, um, translate over both provincial and national boundaries and can only be handled by a federal government. Um, the cumulative effects have to be included. Uh, the economic impacts included. Decent regulations have to be put in place that can't be monkeyed with by environmental assessment. Um, forgive me. Um, when they put mitigation procedures in there, there has to be enforcement. Um, and uh, above and all, we got to get rid of the professional reliance model and instead uh, work at uh, and the client the client uh, consultant relationship that exists between proponents and uh, the environmental assessment where where proponents are paying the environmental assessment office to provide an opinion and and we tend and we are expected to believe that that's an objective one um, the yeah, there, there's quite a few changes that, that particularly in the profession reliance, uh, we should have some form of, um, I was born in Ireland, so I know this, uh, some form of um, devil's advocate process where there is equally a voice at the table in an environmental assessment that says, but what about the whales or what about uh, the impact on the environment and what about the cumulative effects of this and what was the real baseline before any of these things, industries came into this area, what was the real baseline that nature dictated? Um, the rules, the laws of science and nature uh, are are far more fundamentally important uh, to conducting environmental assessments than the laws uh, which we have politicians have enacted will ever be. And, and push comes to shove. Um, guess which prevails in the end? Science and the laws of, of physics and chemistry um, will apply uh, no matter what laws are dictated by politicians. And, and you cannot get around those in a tussle between man-made laws and the laws of, of nature. Laws of nature will and always should win. Yes, and so in that in that scenario, these here these hearings or the process should be more like a, a legal proceeding with cross-examination and the the uh, uh, entrance into evidence, peer-reviewed scientific material, which can support uh, uh, the information at hand or, or contrast to what the, the proponent has forwarded as their quasi-scientific uh, uh, or, or favorable information. Yeah, uh, the, the, the proponent or, or the officials in the environmental assessment office opining about the probable um, consequences, economic and environmental consequences of a proposal. Uh, I think is grossly insufficient and uh, science doesn't enter into a lot of it. There's a report written for and by the proponent by these professional advocates um, that the public is supposed to digest. Uh, the most recent one of wood fiber involved reading 6,000 pages in, in 30 days. So you had to be a speed reading king in order to, to, to go through it. Right. Um, and uh, there is the, the guardian of the public trust is the Environmental Assessment Office, the same guys who are being paid by the proponent to produce their report. That That's sense. who's supposed to be guarding the, the hen house uh, and, and it's not happening. And uh, yeah, I mean, you look at the BC Oil and Gas Commission that was founded basically to try and cut red tape for, for oil and gas facilities and is doing a very fine job of it. But when you get the current deputy 
Minister of Energy, being the chair of the BC Oil and Gas Commission, and the public policy being to promote these things, uh, you know that the, the regulator, the BC Oil and Gas Commission, is not performing the tax of the task of regulating, it's performing the task of promoting. And and that has to stop. Yeah, and, and I think as well, there needs to be an inclusion uh, from the National Energy Board's uh, perspective that uh, the catastrophic effects of oil and gas development, whether that's a, you know the spill or, or even the on the emissions side, that needs to be included into these uh, assessments because otherwise, you know, the, the Every single pipeline we have has had a leak, whether it's massive or minor. It's just—it's not a question of if; it's a question of when. And certainly, when we look at uh, the, the thankfully uh, cancelled for this point in time uh, Northern Gateway project, you know, which crisscrossed some of the world's greatest salmon streams, you know, a singular event of that vitamin spilling could result in generational damage uh, of those salmon streams. Yeah, and when you realize, as, as Enbridge did down in Kalamazoo, um, that, that by the time you diagnose the problem um, and start to shut down the compressor stations, pushing the product along the pipe, um, by the time you do that, there's an awful lot of stuff to be spilled. These compressor stations, uh, say on an oil pipeline, are usually 50 kilometers apart. So you have a 36 or 48 inch pipeline full of, at high pressures of, of Dilbit or something um, that have to exhaust themselves down to atmospheric pressure um, before the effect of shutting off as instantly as you wish um, uh, the, the compressor stations that has to empty. That's an awful lot of product to go down a river or into streams um, in the meantime, no matter how good the detection mechanism and in the case of Enbridge in Kalamazoo, it took 11 hours before they realized, oops, um, it's leaking. Yeah. And the existing PNG gas pipelines uh, that travel along the Skeena Corridor, I mean, I've, I've fished in that region for many years, and uh, I believe they were installed around 1957, and there's been seven or eight instances where a portion or portions of the pipeline have, have ruptured through to either landslide or, or high stream flows where they alter the stream course. Um, and there's no, one could only, and of course with natural gas, the damage once there's a spill is much less. Um, however, if the pipeline of, of Dilbit or, or other petrochemicals are flowing down that same route, you know, the, the, it's not a highly unlikely event, it's a highly likely event that there's going to be a problem. Yeah, there is, much as it's highly likely that somewhere along the line, um, and Dilbert Tanker is going to whack into something between Port of Vancouver and the Open Ocean. And, uh, and we're going to have a spill we can't cope with. We don't even know if the stuff floats um, uh, and for how long it floats. And because if it disappears into the ocean well, and, and lands on the, on the subsurface, uh, then only fishery scientists like my daughters will care. Uh, well, then how do you remove that? I mean, that becomes a whole other... Whole other you don't. Yeah. Um, you hope that digestive processes of bacteria over time will, will remove it. But there goes BC's reputation, its tourism industry. It claimed to be, you know, the cleanest, greenest province in Canada. Um, and for what? Um, to lose money um, every year uh, to... Uh, yeah. The, uh, when there are alternatives available, we just have to get on with them. Yeah, yeah. 
So let, let's switch gears here into solutions. I mean, we're, we're obviously well aware, everyone's well aware of the problems. Um, if, if Dr. Finn is in charge of implementing a new strategy, energy strategy for BC, uh, what does that look like? Oh, it looks, uh, we have uh, <clears throat> a national energy strategy. Um, and uh, when you make the emperor of, of something for the day, um, we have a national energy strategy that realizes that we have some very good <clears throat> hydroelectric capabilities across Canada. We have Quebec, Manitoba, and BC. And if we had interconnecting uh, grid ties uh, between those, we could supply a great deal of energy to um, across the whole of the Canadian things. Uh, we would uh, probably not have nuclear in that mix, but we would have a great deal of solar and wind renewables in, in that mix. Um, the, um, we, would, we would rest control of the transmission network um, in each of those provinces and put it in the hands of, uh, out, of out of the hands of uh, public monopolies like BC Hydro, and we would put it in the hands of independent system operators um, with careful controls so we avoid any Enron-esque type scandals. Um, uh, we would uh, hike the the tax on fossil fuels uh, up between $100 and $200 um, uh, an emissions ton. And uh, <clears throat> that might bring into play a whole pile of new technologies to deal with carbon capture, which we are going to have to do. To do. But currently, <clears throat> when a corporation can blow um, GHGs in the air and pay $30 a ton for it, why would they invest in $100 a ton carbon capture? Uh, it doesn't make sense in a boardroom, in any boardroom I've been in. And uh, so we have to hike the carbon tax way up. We have to uh, refit our, we have to start a whole new industry of refurbishing homes to be energy efficient and GHG and uh, less GHG intensive. So goodbye Fortis and your million customers burning natural gas. Uh, we would investigate uh, hydrogen as a potential fuel source, uh, particularly green hydrogen and not the gray or blue kind uh, that the fossil fuel industry is wanting to pivot to, where um, hydrogen is derived from natural gas, which I think is a losing game again. It's, it's getting back into, oh, how about the carbon dioxide that you throw in the air when you do that? Um, we would uh, have a serious um, policy about um, electric vehicles, uh, particularly for the truck fleets, and uh, promote that and develop an industry that Canada could be proud of um, uh, in uh, research um, and building uh, green tech. Uh, we would have lots of people employed in building retrofits, of course. Anyhow, if I did all that inside whatever length of time you gave me as energies are, uh, I'd be very pleased with myself and would uh, be able to look my children in the face saying I did my best. Uh, and then what about the detractors that are saying that some of those alternative energy platforms like the windmills and, and solar farms have uh, limited recyclability of the materials that they're made of? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I chuckle at that. Uh, now, now that, that's what's known as a Hail Mary pass in football terms. Um, when you have nothing else to complain about other than they're very uh, and increasingly uh, cost-effective um, 
a good throw in there that, oh, well, those rare earths that only China has, it's not true. Um, and all that titanium in the windmill veins um, uh, is, is very environmentally destructive. Suddenly the mining industry is trying to avoid um, complaining about its own products. <laughs> so, but, and then damning the renewable industry with them. Yes, they do take uh, mining. They do take energy. It's just a fact of life. It's, it's also a fact of life that we will, for a long time, need um, fossil fuels. In order to, while we do the transition, we just have to do it, the transition really quickly. And and you can't, in a carbon-dominated energy scene, you can't avoid being somewhat of a of um, a hypocrite. Uh, but but I salve my conscience on that one by doing my damnedest to see that the energy revolution and the decarbonization of our energy industry happens as quickly as I can possibly make that happen. Yeah, certainly that on the point of the windmill blades or veins in particular, it affords an interesting opportunity for the development of, um, of a organic cellulosic polymer um, you know, not, we, we don't, obviously don't have that uh, uh, product available today, but certainly if we look at a means in which pulling carbon from the atmosphere, we could look at, uh, you know, the high tensile strength of uh, hemp fiber, which could be incorporated with other materials uh, to form up uh, those blades, which now we're uh, sort of killing two birds with one stone. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of lies being promulgated about windmills. Uh, your average cat. Um, kills far more birds than your average windmill every year. So if you really want to preserve the bird, bird population, have fewer cats. Um, um, but you know they're they're wildly wildly touted as being cat kill, as being bird killers. <laughs> well, I'm sure um, I'm sure they kill some of the the, uh, the less intelligent birds, the ones that aren't paying attention. But that's a bit of Darwinian uh, evolution in, in action. If the the birds need to alter their migration courses, and and certainly if if we identify corridors of high bird migration, why would we build windmills in there or allow us allow a gap within the the blades or, or the actual uh, positioning towers to allow them to move through there? Yeah, um, I mean the chances, like I said. Um, windmills do kill birds. Um, so do high-rise buildings with glass windows, uh, which is anybody who's lived in them has heard bird wax all the time. Um, and those are far more effective um, bird killers. There's a whole bunch of facts that, that are not facts at all, that the fossil fuel industry has dreamed up to try and avoid and delay competition um, from taking over. The, I mean, the, the case in point um, in South Australia, um, Elon Musk uh, declared that when they had a big outage of the power, um, that he could build a, a battery storage to keep uh, the city of Adelaide going um, uh, within three months, or he would um, make it cost-free for the city. And he did, and and it remains. It, it was powered by wind, and he provided the battery backup such that there would be a, a battery storage. Uh, we're looking at doing that across the whole of Canada, um, and and giving up on on fossil fuels in order to do it. And it would be a great trade-off if we did, did that. Now, Canada has a chance still to lead in this 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 race 
and to lead by using its intelligence and the prowess of its scientists. And uh, we're losing out on the opportunity that, and while we debate this, uh, will we have a pipeline or will we have an LNG facility? Um, time is passing and, and we need to get stuck in and, and make that happen with Canadian prowess. Yeah, and so, offer, and offer employment to our children. Absolutely. And certainly as we, as we debate these non-economical projects, we're losing out on true economic opportunity. And, and you know, I feel that uh, Canada's lost its way over the last decade or 15 years, where at one point it was something to be proud of to be Canadian. And I think at this point, that, that what's, what is there to be proud of nationally? Uh, I think we've, we're kind of losing our way. Well, when you look at a country that's got millions of miles of off-road roads, uh, of forest logging roads, heavy, uh, heavy going. Um, and where do we import, import our Jeeps and four-wheel drives from? From somewhere else. Um, you look at, we've got billions and billions of trees and lumber. Where do we get our chainsaws? <laughs> Germany. <laughs> so, we don't have a local producer of really well anything. And what we do, uh, we've sold off long ago to somebody from somewhere else uh, to make a profit from. And we're quite content uh, to, to get $20 an hour working for these people and uh, have no say in how they operate and no ownership control and sadly, no government control either um, on these corporations. We are a disgrace to the world of the utilization of our brains and our intelligence um, and, and our willingness to be happy with, oh, well, all right, so if Canada is owned by somebody else, that's fine, as long as we have a job and a paycheck and, and the NHL on Saturday nights. So. Yeah, I think some of that is uh, a successive move towards uh, increasingly socialistic tendencies where the, you know, somehow capitalism and entrepreneurship uh, seen as somehow American and bad, where you know we, uh, uh, Canada needs to get into that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and one detractor that we do have is our limited population in terms of producing goods domestically for Canadian consumption. It's almost not viable. But if we can develop these alternative energy technologies that the globe needs, um, that's where our, uh, to me, that's where our future lies in terms of our economic opportunity. Yeah. And when I live close to the port of Vancouver and every day I see, um, well, not every day, but a lot, I see um, ships with raw logs going out. Uh -huh. And then other ships with Costco on their side or Walmart on their side uh, coming in with finished furniture and wood products of all sorts. And I think th this country is really losing it. Um, to not have secondary manufacture and not have a new wood-based products, um, resource-based products uh, being made here uh, with Canadian labor and Canadian talents and Canadian resources. And instead, we have five major banks who, who seem to regard their bailiwick as funding foreigners to take over Canadian um, enterprises and sucking the financial oxygen out of the air of local entrepreneurs. Um, uh, yeah, I yeah, change a lot of things if you put me in charge. We, we definitely need a, uh, a make, make Canada great again type campaign where we're looking to nationalize the production and, and, and bring some of this manufacturing back to Canada 
and create some level of economic opportunity and, and uh, future for Canadians. Well, that's not a logo that I'd hang my hat on ever. Um, so. <laughs> something, something similar to those, you know, that, that but, type of but, Yeah, I'd agree with the general drift. It's, it's time we had a real industrial policy here. We had a real energy policy here. And, uh, and a government who was willing to, to bravely put that forward and follow it. Uh, we don't have any such government here. Um, from coast to coast, uh, we have the apologies that we we currently see in most provincial and and, and the federal parliament who seem to want to debate things about who said what and with which and to whom rather than get on with the business of running the country for which we pay them. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, Owen, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as a an eighteen to twenty year old young man, what would you tell that young man? What, oh, what I have, advice would you give them? <laughs> I have this continuing uh, debate with myself. Of, I'd love to believe in reincarnation because I have about six careers that I want, really want to pursue if I came back as a teenager. And, you know, one of them is, is my dream that had now gone, uh, that I would become, as I nearly became a space scientist. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, explore space. Um, way back in my professional career, I had a very bit part in the Hubble mission, and uh, and really thought mm, there's a Nobel Prize in that for sure, um, which there has proven to be. And uh, that's one one career that I would. Uh, the idea of coming back as a politician, uh, reprehensible though that may seem to some people, <laughs> uh, and doing good. Um, and now it takes collective will to, to do good in, in politics. Um, and he has any backbencher will tell you uh, that that influencing party policy in caucus is a very difficult thing for a backbencher to do. Um, but and, and in getting and, and staying in power demands compromises of the worst ilk. But um, that's a career that would interest me. And you know, I was a, a minor student later in my earlier university days and uh yeah um well sir you you have that career my, you have my vote as premier of bc should you throw your uh, hat into the ring we certainly need someone with your level of expertise and and uh, breadth of experience to uh take the reins here and, and uh save the the ship from crashing on the rocks here well, thank you for the kudos, um, but um, I'm happily retired, but but not yet out. Um, and I intend to influence by writing, speaking, and uh, otherwise doing interviews like this about what BC needs to, to give itself a shake, wake up, and realize that we're talking about the future of this planet and doing BC's share uh, to make it happen. And, uh, and not be mouthing rubbish like appears in mostly in, in clean BC's policy um, while doing something entirely to, 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 to uh, sink it uh, and, and in its hopes of ever achieving its targets. Since the Rio summit in the early 90s, um, successive federal governments have made, I think, nine separate promises of meeting climate targets. So far, they've missed five of them by country mile. They're, they'll miss two more this year and the 2020 targets. Um, so that's seven. And the two remaining ones are the 2030 and 2050 targets, which they, uh, according to everybody's prognostication, stand every chance of missing. 
So, um, but really there'd be no serious consequences to any politician of, of missing those. They go too bad, so sad, and move on. So uh, I would hold them uh, to account. And I, much like any CEO of any company, or some of them anyway, uh, make CEO salaries uh, dependent on results. And I would hold politicians to the same thing, going, you don't get paid unless you make this target act accordingly. Um, that would, would seem to them to be harsh. And and they love, as has happened in Sightsee, blaming whoever came before them for the perils that they're currently in. Um, but in the case of Sightsee, it's a responsibility that's equally shared. And I don't think any liberal or NDP supporter is going to jump out and say, no, it was, it was us that did it. Um, uh, they share the responsibility for a white elephant like that. So, um, yeah, it needs lots of changes and it needs to happen fairly quickly if we're to secure a livable world, uh, renewable industry, renewable um, energies, and uh, move on from there. And to, uh, there are some things happening around the world that, that is, is going to influence macroeconomically our, our, our lives and future. The, the population increase that we had all so feared that would take us over 10 billion is not going to happen. Um, birth rates and um, and uh, immigration rates are such that uh, that um, China is going to see a huge decline in its population, largely the result of the one-child policy. Uh, Europe and other developed countries have seen the birth rate uh, decline below their, the 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 uh, level that would maintain the population, so they will depend on immigration, much as Canada already does, um, to keep its numbers up. Um, we're we're a, a nation, a species that is in serious peril of, of eliminating itself from the planet uh, due to making it an unlivable place. We're melting the Arctic oceans. We have already tipped the scale on lots of things, and we are uh, whistling past the graveyard um, when we think we can avoid the worst calamities of climate change. Every scientist in the world says so. Well, the, be hard pressed to not believe them. The the only thing that I take solace in that uh, equation <clears throat> is that the planet has recovered from many greater cataclysmic events than this. Whether humanity is able to survive with the planet is a different question. But at, uh, at this point, we've kind of lost our our uh, tenure as the stewards of the planet, and we're you know we're now. Uh, culpable for whatever happens to us. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we will, the planet, according to current calculations, will survive just fine. We probably won't. Uh, the, but it will probably not turn into a, a Venus or a hot, dry, dusty Mars or you know, fiery Jupiter. Um, but we'll go on as a the little blue pearl um, in the sky. We just won't be part of it and some other species will take over as the dominant ants yeah there's more of them than us <laughs> by a goodly percentage uh, yeah and uh, they, work, they work together um, that's they, one of their secrets they do uh so Owen, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your organization my sea to sky um what are your organization's uh strategic priorities well, we have three. Um, one is uh, we we have at least achieved a, a status of no action, inaction with, uh, was to preserve how sound um, and protect how sound. Um, 
from things like the wood fiber LNG plant and the Burnco gravel mill, which was proposing to dig up a salmon stream and turn it into gravel for the building industry. Um, so far, we're we're running where neither of those looks like they're going to go ahead. Um, and uh, the third being, uh, we're currently involved with the uh, something called the zero carbon. Uh, challenge uh, where we are challenging communities across Canada uh, to score and keep track of their GHG emissions uh, and their use of carbon fuels. Uh, that's in its early stages uh, with a group called the Climate Caucus, which is a collection of mayors and elected officials from all across the country. And the, the we can't claim that we invented the subject, but um, we have advanced the cause somewhat. And we're starting to put our collective brains and thoughts around that, which is to get communities uh, to to agree to limit their carbons and aim at a zero carbon, being zero carbon communities by 2050. So uh, at the latest. Okay. Um, that's uh, a grand mission, which will take us out of the geography we started with, which is how sound, and we will have to restructure accordingly to 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 make that happen. But it's a grand plan. And I like it. Uh, it has a very positive, you know, instead of being against this and against that and against the other thing, we are for um, communities, and this is a community level, um, municipal level, which um, to make them um, achieve zero carbon um, by 2050. Uh, that's a, a noble aim. It's one I'm thoroughly behind. And uh, the leaders of My City Sky are thoroughly committed, and the board are thoroughly committed to. Uh, excellent. Yeah, and certainly on that on that topic, uh, you know, it, it uh, baffles me that a community uh, like Kelowna, where we have so much sunlight, there's not a building code strategy to employ uh, solar on roofs, either as a as a mandated requirement or as some sort of taxation offset. Um, you know, we, we could be every home in the valley here could be eighty to ninety percent energy independent for eight months of the year for sure. Yeah, um, I see no reason why they can't be. Uh, we have no reason in BC for energy purposes to harm a carbon molecule. Uh, when we have, uh, as the guy in Hydro says, when it keeps raining in the winter and we have glorious sunshine for a great deal of summer, uh, there is no reason to be burning fossil fuels to power anything. Uh, we just have to get on with it and convert our energy systems, our transportation, and our buildings to, to get along with, that, with zero carbon. Um, we, we, we can and we will do that, and the quicker the better. Um, Cologne in particular and the Okanagan is blessed with all that sunshine. Uh, there's more energy that falls um, on, the, on the surface of the earth in an hour than all the fossil fuels that ever there were. Um, uh, being burnt and uh, we just have to, to get smart and capture it and while we have an energy utility that calls itself bc hydro and, and is actually act actively dissuading people from putting in their own solar and investigating any um, wind potential and depriving small communities from the ability to switch from diesel to to solar and wind um, we have to rectify that situation and, and remind them what their mission really is and what the original inspiration of WAC Bennett was in farming it, uh, which was to provide energy to, to BC. Um, 
at an affordable cost. It was originally called the BC Electric Company, yeah. not the BC Hydro Company. And they changed their name because yeah, they love dams. So like I said, every, if everything looks like a nail. So. And, and certainly if, if the objective is to uh, power our transportation, either personal or industrial uh, with electric, we need to have that independent individual power generation to top up your, your car's energy source from the collection uh, from your solar cells while you're away at work. Yeah, I mean, I did some math on, on typical car usage and how if, as BC Hydro has predicted, we have in 2030, we have a third of a million cars, electric cars in BC. Everybody said, oh, but where will we have the energy to power them? Well, I figured that about 25% of a Site C would be enough to power 300,000 electric cars. Uh, we currently have, I forget, 15,000 or something. Um, so I won't argue that, that we, we don't need more electric power to decarbonize our economy. We do. Um, but generating it with a Site C is is uneconomic. It is ignoring the fact that there are other alternatives and ways of doing that. We just need to get smart about it. That's right. That's right. So how, how can people get involved or contribute to your organization? Oh, um, go to um, org, and feel free to contribute to the work we're doing. Um, I do it on a volunteer basis, but we do have an executive director um, and some paid staff. And, uh, and that all that will help um, to spread the message and um, get on with the job that we absolutely positively need to do. As I said, um, my children came to me and said, you have to give us a better planet than you got from your parents. Get on with it. I would counsel that advice to every parent across the country, not just BC, to look to the future and think about what it's going to be like um, for your kids to grow up where they need advanced degrees in order to be a meaningful part of the of the economic um, scene in the country, where they're going to have to compete with jobs that have been taken over by artificial intelligence, uh, where their human gene genome um, changes um, are going to make custom kids um, a real possibility. We're looking at some huge social and economic changes over the next little while, all of which will command us uh, to, to generate an economic policy that will preserve our ability to compete in the world. And throwing flushing money down the drain on fossil fuel plants is not any part of that future. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, that's excellent. Uh, great conclusion, Owen. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I will include a link uh, to mycdesky.org my uh, um, in the comments of the of the uh, of our interview here today. And um, any 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 other concluding statements before we wrap it up today? Um, other than to wish us all well in our journey, we have begun. Um, we're not proceeding fast enough for anybody's uh, satisfaction, and. Uh, we have some serious challenges. Uh, let's get on with it. Absolutely. We're Canadians after all. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's great, sir. Uh, let's keep in touch as uh, some of these topics uh, develop and, and uh, hopefully we come to a, 
a positive conclusion with all this, which uh, is the development of some new industries and some new economic opportunities instead of uh, dealing in 1950s mentality. Yeah, dig it up, rip it and ship it uh, is gone. Um, good riddance, thanks. Yeah, excellent. Okay, sir, thank you so much. You enjoy the rest of your day and um, uh, we will be in touch in the future. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, bye-bye.